Good evening. It is certainly great to see everybody that is here this evening. I tell you, it's always an honor and a joy and a privilege anytime that uh, I'm able to be here with you here at, at Panama Street. You know, I believe that uh, once you're a Peace Streeter, you're kind of always a, a Peace Streeter. And so I haven't been a member here for a number of years, but I still consider myself a Peace Streeter. That is uh, uh, something I'm, I'm very proud of. I, this congregation, the stand that it has taken for truth through the years is well known, not just in this area, but uh, throughout. And it is always just a, such a privilege and a joy to be here. You know, I, Jeff was telling me at camp, I just got back from uh, Apologetics, Pre uh, Apologetics Press Week at ICYC, and Jeff was there and he was telling me about the series that he's doing on Sunday evening about child rearing. And I thought, man, I, I need to ask my elders if I can have off every Sunday evening and, and get, get down here for that. It sounded like great stuff. I know you're enjoying that and all the men that step into the pulpit here that do such a fantastic job. Even the the young man, Rylan, told me here during the kids portion, uh, in the, the before worship, he told me he's going to be preaching on um, not worrying and laying up treasures in heaven. I thought, man, that is something else. What, around six years old or, or so doing that? that that's, that's amazing. Well, it's an honor to be here. Um, hopefully my voice holds out. I uh, was at camp, like I said, and... I tell you what, it, it kind of took its toll after the first night, Conrad, laying on that bed. I was, I was ready to come on home, <laughs> but I, I'm glad to be back home and certainly glad to be here with you. I'm going to preach the lesson here tonight that I actually uh, preached there at camp. The overall theme at camp this year was the flood, and they had several different men talking about the flood and, and things that relate uh, to our life today. And the topic that was assigned to me was preparing for judgment, the flood, and the second coming uh, of Christ. And I really appreciated the title, the idea of preparing for the judgment. And I, I gave the example at the beginning of, of the lesson. I can think of times whenever I was a student in school and, and I was given a multiple choice test. And, you know, you have A, B, C, and D typically. And, and sometimes it might be due to not studying like I should have. Or sometimes I studied, I just forgot an answer. And you get to uh, a question and you don't know the answer to it, right? And whenever you don't know the answer to a multiple choice test, go with C, right? And, and the reason why people do that is because how many times has that been proven right? I can't tell how many times I chose C and got it right. It, it, just luck. Just pure luck. I got it right. Pure luck. You understand that heaven isn't going to be like that? There's not going to be a single person in heaven that's going to be there that got there by sheer luck. There's not going to be a single person in heaven that's going to say, you know what, I didn't really give any thought to this. I didn't prepare for this. I, I, I wasn't really trying to achieve this. I, I, I just, I tell you what, just going through life and, and living, and somehow I ended up in the right place at the end of time. That's not going to happen. If you and I are going to go to heaven, it's going to be because we have spent our time in this life, and we'll talk more about that here in just a second, preparing for heaven. Preparing for the day that, that we breathe our last breath, preparing for the day that the Lord comes back. When you think about world history, uh, the greatest event it would be the flood, would it not? Outside of creation, the greatest event in the history of our world is the flood. And there has not been anything as great as that day since then, and there won't be until Jesus Christ comes back. And ultimately, the entire physical world, the, the whole universe, the physical universe is burned up and, and dissolved. And so it's, a, it's amazing when you look at the Bible and, and you find out all the similarities between 
the flood and the second coming. In fact, over and over in the New Testament, the, the Bible actually makes the comparison. So this is not really a, a hard thing to look at. All you have to do is open up your Bible and, and dig into this. So for the sake of time, let me jump straight in. As we think about the flood and the second coming of Christ and, and preparing for that great day. Number one, I want you to think of the word suddenness. You understand that if you would have lived in the days of Noah, you remember what Genesis 6, I believe verse 5 says, that, that the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Uh, man had become so wicked in the face of the earth that, that they, just, they woke up every morning thinking about what evil they could get into that day. They went to sleep every night dreaming about what evil they could get into the next day. This was a very corrupt time. And you know what's amazing is God said, look, I, I'm, I'm only going to put up this for, what, 120 years, I think he said. And he was going to bring an end to it all. But, you know, just a day prior, just one day prior to that flood coming on and, and destroying the world, if you and I would have lived back then, if you would have looked up in the sky and examined the clouds, would there have been any indication, hey, you know what, tomorrow all of this is going to be destroyed? You know, there wouldn't have been. Even a second before it happened, there would have been no uh, evidence outside of the, the righteous preaching of Noah that, hey, all of this is going to be destroyed. It was sudden. You remember in Matthew chapter 24, by the way, whenever Jesus had mentioned that the temple's going to be destroyed, you remember he said, not one stone's going to be left on another. And he was asked, Lord, when are these things going to be? What's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? I submit to you there's more than one question there. And by the way, Frank, at camp, when I said this, uh, a man actually pulled me aside afterward and said, hey, brother, I disagree with you. I, I think Matthew 24, the entire chapter is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. I disagreed with him on that. But my understanding of this is the first part of Matthew 24, Jesus answers the question about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then you get to verse 36 and he transitions. Remember, he says, but of that day, no one knows, not, not the angels, the father only. I submit to you, starting in verse 36, he's talking about the day that he comes back and brings world history to an end. Not just Jerusalem, but world history, the world to an end. And you remember, he then talks about that day in verse 37. He says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now think about this for a second. What were the, what were the days of Noah like before the flood? What, what, what is he getting at? Well, he tells us what he's getting at here. When he says, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. The point he's making here is, look, prior to the flood, people were living their life the way they always had. They were doing the things that they had always done. Of course, going back to Genesis 6, 5, we know that that was dominated by evil, by wickedness. But the point is, they were living life like they always had, as if there was always going to be a tomorrow. And it says they were doing that, notice, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The idea there is this was sudden, it, it happened quick, fast, and, and in a hurry, it just, it just all of a sudden happened. And so the point is that when Jesus Christ comes back, you know what people are going to be doing whenever he comes back? They're going to be living their life like they always have. And when I think about the flood as it compares to that, you understand that at the very moment that that flood commenced, wherever you were determined what your fate was. What I mean is you could divide the whole world into two categories in, in terms of location. You were either in the ark or you were outside of the ark. And whenever that flood commenced, wherever you were, 
whether you were in the ark, outside, wherever you were, that determined what was going to happen to you. If you were in the ark, of course, we know that that was just Noah, his sons, and their wives. They were saved. Those outside, every single one of them died. In fact, I remember a number of years ago, I don't know, maybe five years ago or so, that movie came out simply titled Noah, which was, don't watch this. I mean, it was the most atrocious, terrible thing I've ever seen in my life. I only, the only reason I watched it is because I was going to preach a lesson about the real story, and I wanted to, to show what Hollywood did with the story versus what the Bible says. But, you know, in, in the Hollywood version, there was a stowaway that actually snuck onto the ark and survived some evil person. The Bible's very clear. Only eight people were saved. And those were the ones that were on the ark whenever the flood commenced. There were no stowaways, people that got on later on or anything like that. This was sudden. You know, when Jesus Christ comes back, there's not going to be any uh, indication it's about to happen. You remember what 2 Peter 3 verse 10 says, by the way? The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. Whenever I was a child, I remember uh, I was in San Antonio, Texas with my grandparents, and we went out one night to eat, and we got home late. And when we returned back to my grandparents' house, the front door of the house was wide open. And I'll never forget my papa had my brother and I and my meemaw stand outside while he went inside to, to make sure the coast was clear, make sure everything was okay. And luckily there was nobody in the house, but there were things missing out of the house. In fact, uh, the big thing that they took, I remember, was the television out of my grandparents' bedroom. Now, why didn't my grandfather stay home and prevent that man or woman, whoever it was, from breaking into the house and stealing their things? Because he didn't know what was going to happen. You know, a thief doesn't send you a postcard and say, hey, just want to give you a heads up, tomorrow at about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, I'm going to come to your house and steal your things, and I just want to let you know that. Right? It doesn't work that way. He's going to come at a moment you don't expect. Suddenly. That is, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be sudden. Uh, in fact, what does uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 say? In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But I also want us to think about the word severity as we think about the flood and, and Jesus coming back to severity. Do you understand that sin is an awful thing? Our society, we, we mock sin. We, uh, in fact, we celebrate it even. We, we glorify it. June is my birthday month, so this especially hurts me. You know what I found out just recently? I was at the mall. This was actually yesterday. I was at the mall yesterday to get a few things for my wife. And I walked in, and we were in there, I don't know, maybe five minutes. And this couple came walking our direction, walking down the same, I guess, aisle where we were. And it was clearly two women. And, and one of the women looked like a woman, but the other woman was clearly a woman trying to look like a man, but it was very obvious. And she was wearing a shirt that had this rainbow pattern on it uh, that said the, the word uh, daddy. She's the man of, of the relationship. So I, we walked a little bit further, and a couple of men walked by. And, and they were clearly living a... Uh, contrary to God's will for, uh, for sexuality. And, and they had these rainbow shirts on. Then we went into a store, 
And the workers were wearing these rainbow shirts. And I looked over at a rack and there was an entire rack dedicated to, to gay pride and just clothes that you could buy with wording on it, celebrating love is love and things like that. And I thought, why am I, what, in, and, you know, we're in Alabama, this is the Bible Belt. What, why are we seeing this? Well, then come to find out that, you know, that June is gay pride month. That's why. You know, we, we literally have, as a society, have taken sin. Not only does it, does it not make people blush or people cringe, people have pride in their sin. And it's celebrated. In fact, I, I read a news article just today that the president, actually, this is actually good news. The president was getting requests from uh, several embassies. I don't know if you heard about this or not. Within our land to fly a rainbow flag next to the, next to the American flag. And the previous administration had okayed it. Um, but the president this time said, no, we're not, we're not doing it. And that's certainly good news. My point is, we live in a time where sin is looked at as not that big of a deal. It's, um, it's celebrated and, and people have pride. And in fact, if you were to watch a television show, how is sin depicted? Is sin shown to be a bad, vile, ugly thing? And of course, the answer to that is absolutely not. In fact, it's shown to be something that one ought to be engaging in. It's good. It's good for you. It'll make you happy. And yet you understand whenever you read the Bible that sin is an ugly thing. It's the most horrible thing you and I could ever imagine. Why? Because it's an affront to a holy God. It is by definition, it's ungodly. It is wicked. It is evil. It is every vile description you could think of. Sin is the worst thing you can imagine. Small word. But certainly when you think about how big of a deal it is. It can't be overstated. Let me show you how terrible sin is and how severely God deals with it. And by severe, I don't mean cruel. But God handles this in, in a severe manner. Genesis 7, verse 23. He destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Dr. Dave, uh, not Dr. Dave, Dr. Jeff, Jeff Miller, uh, there at, um, at camp this week was showing that uh, different uh, statistics on the possible population at the time of the flood. It was anywhere between, based upon how long people lived and everything, 250 million people and possibly over a billion. So when you stop and think, you know, we can read that real quick and, and they were all destroyed from the earth. We're talking about potentially hundreds of millions of people died in this flood. In fact, they, didn't, they drowned. God, God drowned these people. And of course, that's not, you know, people might look at that and say, man, God is really mean for doing that. And friends, I wish we had time to, to really develop this point. We don't. But understand, this is not God's fault here. God gave them plenty of time to fix this. In fact, God said he gave them 120 years. He gave them, he gave them Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter uh, chapter two says he gave them plenty of time. This is not God's fault. You know, when you read the Old Testament, you might be tempted to walk away thinking, man, you know, God is kind of mean. He's constantly destroying people and punishing people. That's not God's fault. All God is doing is responding to people based upon the decisions that they've made. When you think about Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. You see there that there's two paths laid out. Look, I call heaven and earth today against you. Look, there's two paths, right? Blessing and cursing, life and death. Therefore, choose life. But it's not God's fault when man chooses death. 
That's their own decision that God in his love has given us the free will to, to choose if we choose to do that. This was handled severely. You know, you think about the, the second coming, 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. You know, it goes on to say, based upon that, what manner of persons ought we to be, right? Whenever the Lord comes back, this is going to, he's going to handle sin. He's going to punish and it's going to be severe. You remember, by the way, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I believe starting in verse 7 through 8. And to give you who are troubled rest, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on them who do not know God. Notice this, taking vengeance on them who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is going to be severe. Now, let me make a point here before we move on. I can remember being younger after obeying the gospel, and, and I realized, hey, you know, there are some things that I can't do anymore. There are some things I used to do that I can't do it. Uh, I, there are some places I used to go that I can't go. But I had my friends or people that used to be my friends, and they, they didn't have any care or concern about any of that. They did whatever they wanted to do. They spoke however they wanted to speak. They dressed however they wanted to dress. They, they did whatever they wanted to do. And I can remember at times, especially when I was younger, struggling with this idea that, man, you know, here it is. I'm so uh, constrained and I can't, I'm not able to do these things. And they're just able to, to live it up and do whatever they want to do. Friends, let me share a couple things here with you. You remember David, a man after God's own heart, by the way. He was there, what, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, there on the rooftop of his house. You know this story well. He sees a woman. And instead of looking away as he sees this woman without clothes, instead of looking away, he stares at her and feeds this lust that is creeping up in his heart. So much so that he finally sends messengers to inquire about this woman. I'll never forget back whenever I was a member here, Frank made the point that, you know, if only those messengers would have said, we won't go. How differently David's life could have turned out. If somebody would have said, David, we're not doing this. We're not going to go find out. This is another man's wife. We're not going to go over here and get this woman for you. But you remember, ultimately, even after finding out she's the wife of Uriah, they bring her to David. Now, here's my question. Why is David doing this? Well, here's why. He's, he's thinking fleshly. He's, he's thinking of this momentary pleasure. He, he just knows, I see something that I like and I'm going to take it because it would make me happy. That sound familiar to you? Think about Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. It was desirable to the eyes. She took it. You know, he thought this was really going to be a great time. And for a moment, he probably thought he had gotten away with something. Of course, you remember, he then immediately felt the guilt of that sin, and he felt the pressure of what he had caused with this particular sin, ultimately ended up killing her husband, Uriah. You know, whenever David first saw that woman, do you think he thought to himself, you know what? If I keep staring at her, and, and if I ultimately bring her back to 
my place, to fulfill whatever desire, fleshly desire that I have, it's going to result in me not only being an adulterer, but also I'm going to murder a man. You think you would have thought that that's how that was going to end up? But of course, that's not the end of the story, because you remember that Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12 came to David and told him the story about the man with the ewe lamb, and you remember David's response after he heard the story, he says, that man needs to die, and you remember that famous statement, Nathan said, thou art the man, you're the man. And David was repentant, and God uh, forgave him, but you remember, it wasn't just, okay, let's forget about this and move on. You remember, there was a few penalties for this error. Number one, the child was going to die that was conceived. Number two, remember God ultimately said to David that the way that you, you did this with another man's wife, the same thing is going to happen with your wives in front of everybody. And of course, that was fulfilled in, through his son Absalom. And the sword will never depart from your house. For all practical purposes, for the rest of David's life, after the sin with Bathsheba, he never enjoyed another day of peace. There was constant war and strife within David's house. Remember one of his sons, what he did to his sister Tamar, Amnon? Remember that the, the, the full brother of Tamar, Absalom, then kills Amnon, and later on would have killed David had he the opportunity to do it. And ultimately, that son dies, and you remember that pathetic cry of David, Oh, Absalom, Absalom. And, and when David is on his deathbed, you remember he, he's there, and he's, he's, he, they, they have somebody coming to lay in the bed with him just to keep him warm. Remember, he couldn't even die in peace. You remember what was happening while he was in the process of leaving this world? His other, one of his other sons was trying to usurp the throne. He never enjoyed another day of peace for all practical purposes in his life. And what caused all of that? What did that? Well, that, that sin. Sin did that. You see, sin is deceptive. It, it promises a great time. It promises, hey, look, this is really the good life. You're going to enjoy this. But I'm telling you, the only thing that ultimately comes along with sin is guilt, is shame, is punishment, is misery. Every horrible thing you can think of. That's why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 through 25 says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy, get this, the passing pleasure of sin. Moses was royalty in the most powerful nation in the world. That would have been a comfortable life. And yet he chose to suffer affliction with this hard-hearted, stubborn people. Why? Was he just a glutton for punishment? No. But he knew what was right. And he knew that if he chose sin, that was just a passing pleasure. That was, there was nothing lasting in that. Here's my point. Whenever we look around at the world and, and they're living however they want to live and they'll act like they're so happy about doing it, friends, they are not living the good life. They don't have Christ. By the way, Ephesians 1 verse 3, where all spiritual blessings are. They don't have any of that. And ultimately, the end is destruction. And so we don't need to look at the world as if, oh man, I'm really missing out here and they're able to live it up. By the way, I submit to you that many times that the face that the world puts on is absolutely fake. That is, they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows and they're just trying to put on their, their, their mask when they go out in public and make it look like everything is just fine. Basically, their life is one giant Facebook page. What I mean by that is, you know, you look at anybody's Facebook page, you walk away thinking, man, their life is perfect, right? You know, they don't get on there and post bad stuff. You think about 
the idea that in our society now, more and more people are on depression medication than ever in our history before and are literally institutionalized. And I know that there are some legit medical issues, but could it be the case that the reason why more and more people are suffering these depressive episodes and, and, and are having to go be institutionalized, could it be the case that many of those people are where they are because of sin? Could it be that many of them, due to the decisions that they have made, have wrecked their lives? Oh, I believe that's absolutely the case in many instances. It's severe. We don't have to, to be uh, jealous of anything that the world has. And especially when you think about the fact that, friends, the Christian life is the best life in the world. It's not that we're just a bunch of stick in the muds and, and we can't have fun and we never smile and Friends, Christianity is full of smiles and laughter and fun. And, you know, I just got back from camp for a week, and I'm telling you, we had a blast. And we don't have to be ashamed about a bit of it. There's nothing that we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, man, I can't believe I did that. We have a good time. And we have fun. And we have a life that is, is full of being fulfilled. Notice the word surety as you think about the Lord coming back and, and the flood. That is, when God says something is going to happen, you know what that means? Titus 1 and verse 2, God cannot lie. It means it's going to happen. Notice this, 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 9. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Let me pause right there. Are people doing that today? Are there people that, that when they hear us talk about, hey, Jesus Christ is coming back one day, that laugh and mock and scoff, and it's certainly not helped that somebody, uh, many people through the centuries have come along and said, oh, look, I opened up to the book of Revelation and, and I found the math code and I found out that today is going to be June the 10th, 2019. And, and June the 10th, 2019 comes along and, and the Lord doesn't come back. And then scoffers say, what? Oh, see, that's just crazy. Y'all are all crazy. We understand that uh, we don't know that the out, what, what hour he's going to come back, the day that he's going to come back, but we know for a fact he's coming back. Notice this. The individuals that say, Where, you know, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. See, the, the people that come along and say, man, everything that you see going on right now, that's what's always gone on. Ever since the beginning of creation, since the beginning of the world, the world has always gone on the way it's always gone on. And they willfully forget what? In the context, the flood. They forget that the world that existed in Genesis 1 through 6 perished. Notice. For this they willfully forget, by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. You, do you know why the Lord has not come back yet, according to that? He's giving people time to repent. He wants the maximum number of people possible to repent of their sins and be ready for when the Lord comes back. And understand, the Lord's not slack concerning his promise. Don't think to yourself, well, you know, he made that promise a couple thousand years ago, and he's not back yet. He must have forgotten about it. No, no, no. That, God doesn't work that way. 
The promise is just as sure today as it was whenever he initially made it. Jesus Christ is coming back. In fact, I think about John chapter 14, 1 through 2. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you that where I am, there you may be also. Notice this section right here. I will come again. He's going to say, look, there's a great chance I'm going to come back and get you. There's a 95% chance I'm going to come back and bring. I will come back. Friends, just to. Just about everything in this world is kind of a toss-up, and you don't know whether it's going to happen or not. Has, has anyone ever made you a promise, somebody that you really trust? Maybe due to no fault of their own, they weren't able to follow through with it. But that's not God. That's not God. When Jesus Christ says, I will come again, take it to the bank. Jesus Christ will come back. You know, it's easy to think about the uh, the flood and the second coming and, and thinking about Jesus coming back and think, man, you know, that's going to be a scary time because whenever Jesus comes back, the whole earth is going to be burned up and everything's going to melt with fervent heat. How scary is that going to be? I was literally uh, with a friend, a member of the Lord's church out fishing, Shelton, of all things. Can you imagine? I was bass fishing with a friend of mine and he looked at me. We were, we were talking about uh, the Bible and Jesus coming back and and he just, he stopped, he, he, he reeled in and he stopped and looked at me. And he said, you know what? If Jesus were to come back right now, it would scare me to death. Because, you know, I'm not with my family and, and I wouldn't know where the, and, and, you know, I just, I can't imagine how scary that would be. That, that is a tragic, tragic thing. To think about the Lord coming back with, with fear. It, is it going to be a terrifying moment when Jesus comes back? Yes to the lost, not, not to his children. You and I, if we are faithful to God, not only do we not have to fear that day, when you read the rest of 2 Peter chapter 3, it talks about looking forward to that day and hastening that day. We don't have to think about the Lord coming back with fear. That's going to be the greatest thing we can ever imagine. In fact, at camp, after I spoke, Eric, Eric Lyons got up and made the point. Have you ever seen any of those videos? And it'll bring a tear to your eye if you do. You ever seen any of those videos where a soldier has been deployed for a year, sometimes more, and he might go to his child's school and they, they walk in and the child sees their dad and they, they just are, are over, just filled with, just with joy. And Eric made the point that that's what it's going to be like, even greater. When our Lord comes back to get us, we're not going to have to look at that day with fear. We're, we're, that's going to be the greatest day of, of our life. You know, it's amazing when you think about First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. The context here is talking about the Lord coming back. And it's interesting to me. It says, then we who are alive and remain shall be uh, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now notice this phrase. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The idea that the Lord is going to come back should not terrify the child of God. You know what it ought to do? That's comforting. That I can look around at the world and, and see there's so much stuff going on that is, is wrong and ungodly and evil, and, and, and it, it haunts us many times. In fact, sometimes I, I think we're starting to learn more and more what Lot felt like. You, re, you remember 
the Bible tells us that Lot was tormented. His soul was vexed day and night living where he lived in Sodom. I think we're starting to learn more and more what he must have felt like as our society deteriorates around us. But isn't it not comforting to think about one day the Lord's going to come back and ultimately make all of this right, and we're going to get to go home with him. He's going to bring all this to an end and, and punish uh, evil. It ought to bring us comfort to think about meeting our Lord. Okay, let's wrap this thing up, start wrapping it up. You say, okay. So the, when I look at the flood, I look at the second coming, I see that both of them were sudden, they were both severe, and they were both sure. Okay, so what does that have to do with me preparing for the judgment? Let me ask you a question. If you knew for a fact, if, if we could open up a verse and, and, and show for a fact that Jesus Christ was going to come back tomorrow exactly 24 hours from now. Of course, we can't do this, but walk down this hypothetical road with me. If we could show that for a fact, Jesus Christ was coming back in exactly 24 hours from now, what would you do? What would you do if you knew that for a fact? Let me ask you a, a few questions here. Number one, would you obey the gospel? I understand that this is the Sunday night crowd. And so for the most part, uh, everybody here has probably done that. But it might be the case for somebody here that hasn't. You understand that the Bible makes very clear what Romans chapter 1 and verse uh, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Or what about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 2? We see that that... Paul is, uh, makes the point to them that he declared to them the gospel in which they stood, by which they were also saved. You cannot be saved without the gospel. A person might think they can. I can just be a good person. I can just live a good moral life. But friends, the Bible is very clear. There is no gospel. There is no salvation. If you're here and you have not obeyed the gospel and you knew Jesus Christ was going to come back in 24 hours, would you say, look, I need to do this now? This is urgent. I need to take care of this. I don't, I, I don't need to, to be found having not obeyed what my Lord told me to obey. Number two, would you repent? It is easy to believe that repentance is something that, that the world has to do. I mean, after all, I, I am a member of the Church of Christ. I've, I've been baptized. In fact, I cannot tell you how many times through the years I've asked some, uh, somebody, is, uh, is brother or, or sister so-and-so a faithful Christian? And they'll say, well, they were baptized. Okay. Is that part of what a Christian needs to do? Yeah, that's how you become a Christian in the first place. But is that the end-all, be-all? Hey, I've been baptized. I'm good. Absolutely not. Of course you know that. I remember back in 2009, Dan Barker was debating uh, with a man, or Dan Barker, Kyle Butt was debating with a man by the name of Dan Barker. And Dan Barker was up there and he was just making one blasphemous comment after another about God and just very proud of his atheism. You know, it's easy to look at somebody like Dan Barker and we think about John 8, verse 24, therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. Of course, Jesus talking, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. An, in, an individual that is an atheist, we understand they're going to be lost. But is it not interesting to you that in Genesis chapter 4, Cain was rejected by God? Was Cain an atheist, by the way? You know, he wasn't. In fact, he believed in the one true God. What about 
uh, the generation that came out of Egypt, that first generation that ultimately died out in the wilderness, were they atheist? They weren't. What about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10? Whenever they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded, and fire rained down from heaven and consumed those two boys on the spot, were they atheists? And I call them boys. They, they were men, young men. But were they atheists? Of course they weren't. In fact, over and over what you find in the Bible, that many of these people being condemned are not, are not atheists. In fact, they're very religious people. Think about Matthew chapter 15. They honor me with their lips, their hearts far from me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of man. And so the Lord does not need you to become, or, or you do not need to be, uh, be an atheist in order to be lost. And so if, if you're here, maybe there's some secret sin in your life, which there's no such thing, right? We just talked about David. That proves there's no secret sin. God knew about it and sent Nathan to talk to him. Might be that there's some sin in your life that no one here knows about. If there is, would, if you knew Jesus Christ was going to come back in 24 hours, would you repent? If there was somebody that you had wronged and you hadn't fixed it yet, would you do everything you could do to talk with that person, get face to face with that person and resolve that issue? If you knew Jesus Christ was going to come back in 24 hours? I submit to you, you and I probably would. Would you talk to those you've been meaning to talk to about their souls? That is to say, sometimes it is easier to talk to a complete stranger about their soul, about Christ, about obeying the gospel. It's sometimes easier to talk to a complete stranger about those things than it is your friends and your family. I was talking to a woman who was a, a sister in Christ in her 70s. This woman has a few kids, three kids. The youngest child who is in her, she's 50 years old now, so she's a grown woman. This, this oldest child of hers, years ago, left the Lord's church. At one time was a faithful Christian, but years ago left. No longer is faithful. Not only are they no longer faithful, but their life is just eaten up and full of sin. In an unscriptural marriage and doing all kinds of things that are contrary to the will of God. And the thing that was, was always perplexing to me is every time I heard this mother, who's a member of the Lord's Church, talk about this daughter who was doing this stuff, it was always using the most glowing terms you could think of. It was, it was as if she was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And yet, she was unfaithful and her life was just full of sin. So one day I asked the woman, I said, do you ever talk to your daughter about her soul and about repenting? You know what she told me? She said, I don't do that. Because if I did, she would not want to have a relationship with me. And said it just as plain as she could say it. It didn't bother her one bit. In fact, uh, she became angry with me uh, for, for suggesting that that was the wrong, the wrong outlook on that. If you knew Christ was going to come back in 24 hours, would you, would you feel the urgency to talk to your friends and your loved ones that are not faithful, who are, have never obeyed the gospel about obedience, and, and here's what the Bible says, you, you need to obey God? I believe we would. What about this one? This is a big one. Would you be preoccupied with entertainment? I looked at a, a study before I came down here tonight. Do you know that the average American watches a little over five hours of television a day? Five hours a day on average. The average American, five hours a day. Uh, it, whenever you, you 
extrapolate out for the year, the average American spends 77 days a year, when you added all the hours together, 77 days a year sitting in front of the television. Now, think about this. We're not, we're not including all other forms of entertainment. We're not including video games and, uh, and going to the movies and, and all. What about social media, Facebook and Twitter and all the time we spend on our cell phones? We're not including any of that. I believe once you add all that in there, what, you might be getting up over 100 days or more. Uh, of the time that we spend just in entertainment. And going back to a point that we made a second ago, you know that the devil, he wants to destroy you. He wants you to go to hell. He, he hates you. He hates God. He hates everything that is associated with God. He wants you to go to hell. And the devil knows that you don't need to become an atheist in order to be lost. You don't have to be an atheist. All you have to do is become unfruitful. That's it, right? John chapter 15. Every branch that does not bear fruit, my father does what with it? Takes it away. All the devil needs to do ultimately is distract you so that you cease to bear fruit, so that you, you, won't, you won't grow, you won't go out and try to teach people the gospel, you won't be feeding on the word of God yourself and growing yourself. You just kind of stagnate and just, and just saturate yourself in, in entertainment and kind of have the attitude that, oh, um, I forget the brother's name at PTP that always says, you know, look, we're not, we can't say, uh, I'm going to lean back on the shoulders of, of do nothing and sit back on do less and say, wake me up when we all get to heaven. The devil, all he needs to do is distract us. There's a, there's a young lady that I know that I met when I was 15 years old. And this young lady was, was different. The very first time I ever saw her, she was different. Though she wasn't a Christian, she had this spirit about her. She was a hard worker and just a, just a really nice young lady. That young lady obeyed the gospel and, and quickly became strong. In fact, I can remember being in the youth group with this young lady, and, and it was always a competition with her you had to, if you wanted to get the highest grade on a memory verse test that Jeff would give us, you had to really study because she was going to do really well every time. I mean, she, she, was, she, was, she was on it. And I can remember thinking to myself that this young lady was one of the most solid, faithful young ladies I had ever met in my life. She went to school, made good grades. She took a job, began to take a lot of her time, a lot of her time. And as far as I understand it, whenever she would have some downtime from work, she, she would never use that time for spiritual things. She stopped being concerned about spiritual things. She would use a lot of her, her time, honestly, to play on her phone and primarily to talk on Twitter with people. That's what she used her free time to do. And she began to, to backslide and she began to drift and drift and drift and drift, so much so that enough time went by that I contacted this lady a month or two ago. I said, hey, I really want to talk to you about your soul. Are you willing to talk about this? And, 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 her, and her response was essentially, no. That she, she hates God. And she wants, she's not an atheist. She just doesn't want to be a Christian anymore. 
Now, that young lady, did she, was she just a solid rock, faithful Christian on Monday and on Tuesday she woke up and she was gone? That's not how it happened. It's not how it happened. She did it because she was preoccupied with something else. And she refused to take the time to constantly feast upon the word of God and nourish herself so that she could continue to grow. Listen, you're doing one of two things right now. You're either growing or you're dying. I mean, that's it. Everybody here, you're doing one of those two things. She chose to use her time in a way that she would die. If you knew that the Lord was going to come back in 24 hours, would you, would you have that cell phone attached to your hand so you could check Facebook every 10 minutes? Probably not. Would you read your Bible? I know I'm telling you a bunch of stories here, but I believe they're pertinent. They've got two more points, and we'll close this. Would you read your Bible? I was having a Bible study with a lady maybe two weeks ago. She's been visiting for a while, and she wanted us to study the Bible with her. And, and when, we, when I walked in the door, she said, you know, I, I like everything that I hear down there at, at, at the church, and, and it's really great, and, I, and I, I like being there. I just can't get over this whole music thing because the church where I come from, we, we play instruments, and, and I am in the band, and I love playing instruments, and I, and I love to do it to honor God and to glorify God and to please God. I said, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll discuss that, and, and so let's, let's sit down and look at this. And so when I asked her to open up her, in her Bible to whatever book uh, I'd asked her to open up to, here's what she told me. She said, oh, you're, you're going to have to uh, show me that I'm not really familiar with, uh, with the, the books of the Bible. This lady was convinced what she was doing was pleasing to God, and yet she had no idea what the Bible said. Isn't that amazing? You know, Jeremiah 10, 23, oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. We can't even make ourselves happy, ultimately. We don't, if we were to just live our life by our own rules and our own standards, our life would be a train wreck. And then to think that we can come to God and think on his level, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, and decide, hey, I know what makes God happy. You know, Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Would it not be the case, if you knew Jesus Christ was going to come back in 24 hours, you'd open up that Bible and make sure that I've done the will of the Father who is in heaven? Would we not make sure that we're doing that which is pleasing to God according to what he says is pleasing to him? And finally, would you pray? I mean, would you, would you pray more fervently than you have ever prayed in your life. If you knew 24 hours, you're going to meet the Lord face to face. Right, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. You know, sometimes a Christian treats prayer like 911. That is, look, if I had to use it, I know how to. I'm comfortable. I know how to use it. But it's my goal, if at all possible, to try to get through this day without having to. Right. If, if, if everything is comfortable and I'm going, then great. I'm, I'm not going to think about it. But if I get in an emergency, if I get in a tight spot, then I'll pull out 911 prayer and all. Then I'll talk to God. In fact, I heard somebody say, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Let that sink in. That's a pretty uh, good um, uh, statement there to really highlight this fact for us that you and I ought to begin every day with prayer. We ought to pray throughout the day and we ought to end every day with prayer. We ought to pray fervently, James chapter 5 and verse 16. There's so much to think about there, but here's the point. If you're thinking, okay, yes, look, if, Jesus, if I knew for a fact Jesus was coming back in 24 hours, look, I would do this, 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 this. If you're thinking that, 
then what you're admitting to yourself is you're not ready for him to come back. Because what we ought to be able to say is, look, I, I, I live every day as if today could be the day that this happens, right? What did Jesus say here? You need to always be ready. Why? Because the Son of Man is going to come at an hour you do not expect. Treat every single day like this is the day, potentially. Because the fact of the matter is, you don't know for a fact that Jesus Christ is coming back in 24 hours, but here's what you do know for a fact. He could. You know that he could. And you know this, that right now, as we're here in this auditorium, what's today's date? June the 9th? Roughly 7 o'clock? Right now, we are closer to the day that our Lord comes back than we have ever been at any point in history. Now, he might delay his coming for another 1,000 years, 2,000 years. It might not be in our lifetime. Or it could be before I finish this sentence. We have to constantly remain ready. And not be like those in the flood generation that, that said, look, I'm just going to live it up and do whatever I want to do. And ultimately, they were met with destruction. We can be ready for the judgment. We can prepare for the judgment. Not a single person was on that ark who had not prepared for that day, whether it be by building the ark itself and then by, of their own volition, walking onto the ark. And likewise, friends, you're not going to be ready for the day of judgment unless you have prepared for that day. You're a faithful Christian. You open up God's word. You see what he wants from us. In fact, John 12, verse 48, his word's going to judge us in the last day. It might be the case that there's somebody here that's not a Christian. You need to obey the gospel. I urge you to do so through hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, being immersed in water for the mission of your sins. It might be you've done those things. You've strayed away. You've backslid. Something's distracted you. You haven't been fruitful, and you need to fix it. Friends, this might be the very last opportunity you and I have to make it right with God. Our Lord's coming back one day, and you can be ready for it. If you need to make something right in your life by obeying the gospel or repenting of sin, I urge you to do so while together we stand and while we sing. Savior, stepping in the 